Hi, and welcome to Linguistics After Dark. I'm Eli. I'm Jenny. And I'm Sarah. If you've got a question about language and you want experts to answer it without having done any research whatsoever, we're your podcast. Settle in, grab a snack or a drink, and enjoy. We're here, it's episode one! Yay! Yeah! Uh, we did a couple of dry run episodes before this. It's probably never gonna uh, surface unless we get real desperate for Patreon content. <laughs> uh, hey, do we want to learn a language thing? Yeah, always. Let's learn a language thing. One of the things we want to do on this podcast is answer all of your questions. But before we do that, we want to share one of our favorite fun language things on every episode. So today's language thing of the day is ambiguity. Uh, ambiguity in linguistics is when a given utterance or sound could mean more than one thing. For instance, as everyone's favorite linguistics joke goes, I like syntactic ambiguity more than most people. Or more than most people. I always knew you were a loner. <laughs> I mean, look, the thing about that sentence is it's true both ways. That's fair. So... The ambiguity in that sentence is that in English it could mean that I like syntactic ambiguity more than most people like syntactic ambiguity, which is possibly true. I don't know. I haven't interviewed everyone. Um, But it could also mean that I like syntactic ambiguity more than I like most people, which is also not always true, but sometimes. (laughs) So syntactic ambiguity is, uh, I think, probably one of the most fun kinds of ambiguity. Because it leads to these interpretations where one is usually the one that is meant more often, but the other is is uh, funny to think about. Mm-hmm. But we also, there are other, there's like phonetic ambiguity mm-hmm. and um, morphological ambiguity also, right? Yeah. One of my favorite examples of morphological ambiguity is with the prefix un. So like an unlockable door is either a door that you can unlock or it's a door that you can't lock. Ooh, oh, that's so good. I like that one. You know, those are two very different types of doors. You really want to make sure that you get the right one when you're storing your valuables or creating an emergency exit. That is the same thing as like an inflammable object where it's a, a thing that you can uh, that you can inflame or set on fire. As right. Also a thing that is not able to be set on fire. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Which that's a, I think that's also a contronym is like a word that means the same thing as the opposite of itself in a different sense. Yes. Which we will save for another episode. Indeed. So the morphological thing here happens because those two uns and those two ins are actually two different prefixes right Mm, they're the same prefix but the question is whether you've put the prefix on before the suffix Mm. like are you able to inflame something or are you in able to flame it oh yes so you could make like a little tree diagram or something like that that talks about how you which, which order you put the suffix on and the prefix on exactly fun with affixes yes always a good time Well, that was an unambiguous end to this segment. Do we want to answer some questions? (laughs) (laughs) 
Fantastic. Okay. On to real language questions submitted by real listeners. If you want to send us a question, email it in text to questions at linguisticsafterdark.com or send us an audio recording of you speaking your question aloud. Audio is especially handy for phonology and accent questions. Okay, let's dive right in. Uh, This is a question that was asked to me in person, actually, and I thought it was a cool question, and I wanted to start us off with it. So in the English word scent, uh, as in how something smells, is it the S or the C that's silent? That's so interesting, and I'd never thought about it before. That's the kind of question that is, yeah, very interesting, but also just makes me want to punch something. (laughs) See, I really want to, like, look up the etymology now and figure out where the Mm -hmm. SC compound for the S sound comes from. And I'm not going to do that because that would be, like... Doing research. Stopping to research in the middle of this. We don't do that. But it also is not just an S sound. It is also a C sound. And I believe historically it's a C sound as well as an S sound. Right. Yeah. Like, it's... Because you can have scent with just an S and scent with just a C. And apparently yeah. you can have scent with both of them, which is weird. I like <laughs> the apparently on there as though before now you were like, oh my god, we, how does... Well, because normally SC in English doesn't do that. Usually SC is sk. Right. I, but then this it? time it isn't. Because there's like words like descent. Um, or I was going to think of another word and I was like ascend. And it's like, yes, that's the same. It's the same thing. <laughs> okay, it's because it's SCE. That's annoying. Uh, your Latin is showing. <laughs> no, just I forgot the whole soft C rules of English. It's fine. Is there a soft C rule of English? Have I just internalized this rule? Yeah, usually, most of the time, if a C is followed by an I or an E, it makes an S sound instead of a K sound. Wow, you just blew my mind. There's probably a cool etymological reason for that. Like the Phoenicians didn't know how to say ooh or something like that. I just, I have to go back to, did either of you go to kindergarten? Yeah. I didn't. Well, okay, fine. You were homeschooled. That was a bad (laughs) joke. But like, yeah, I was like very specifically taught that as a spelling rule. The only spelling rule that I can remember is, uh, you know, I before E except after C, which I guess also now, now that I'm thinking of instances of C's and E's and I's and stuff, like it does make sense. But also that rule, because of loanwords and other word sources has more exceptions than it has words that follow it. So like English spelling has rules. They're just not useful. Easy. <laughs> 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 yeah, I only actually did spelling for like a week when I was about nine. And then mom was like, this is silly. You can spell all of the words this book is trying to teach you. We're not going to waste your time with that anymore. And I went back to just figuring out how to spell by reading things or asking questions. So that is also the only spelling rule I know. Fair enough. And wow. Yeah, soft C, blowing my mind. As you said earlier, the reason I think this is a really cool question is because you can have S-E-N-T, you can have C-E-N-T, and you can have S-C-E-N-T, and all three of them 
sound exactly the same. Scent, scent, and skint. (laughs) (laughs) So, what do we think? Is it the S or the C that's silent? And why is that a bad question? I don't think it's a bad question. I think it's just that, like, English orthography is not phonetic or not consistently phonetic. And this is one of the places where trying to read, like, words in English like it's a phonetic writing system will mess you up because there isn't an answer like that. Yeah, there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between every character in a word and a sound that it is or isn't making. Yeah. You're right. English spelling doesn't work that way, which isn't bad. It's just not the point of English spelling. Yeah. I want to come back to that topic, possibly today, possibly not today. Listeners, ask us your questions about why things are spelled the way that they are, and we'll talk about English orthography and I'm not going to speak for everybody else, but why I love it. Yes. Oh, it's great. We are anti-spelling reform on this podcast. Episode one, taking a stand. (laughs) I feel like I should probably admit here that I was very firmly pro-English spelling reform for like three years when I was in my early teens, but I got over it. (laughs) Like one gets over the flu. <laughs> we all have our phases. Uh, I had, I, I too had an awkward teenage spelling reform phase. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think it's a bad question. It just makes me mad because there isn't an answer. Fair. And I don't like that. And I also am going on record and I'm going to say it's the C that is silent. Because typically we get words with that SC often E pattern, like you said, with ascend and descend. Uh, I think we get a lot of those from Latin where the C would have been pronounced like a K. And then as Latin evolved, like later Latin pronounces SC either as a SH or as a S sound and makes the C silent. And that's what we have brought into a lot of our English pronunciation. Although based on what we think of as English phonetics rules, you could not definitively say whether the S or the C was the silent thing. I'm guessing like 98% confidence that the C is the silent thing. SC being pronounced SH, is that like where you get Commonwealth English schedule from? Probably. I was thinking more of like crescendo... Uh, which I guess I, don't, I just I don't, always assumed that was Italian I mean it is but I think that Italian pronunciation came out of later Latin so Sarah you're saying that it's the C that's silent or we should actually be pronouncing it skent <laughs> I'm saying it's the C that's silent I am not in favor of skent I think that's a silly <laughs> word Opportunity for a hot take and you let it pass by. I I admire that. (laughs) With that mystery solved, how about another question? All right. This one was submitted to us by someone at CrossingsCon 2019. They attended the Linguistics After Dark panel, submitted a question, and we did not get to it because we got a whole lot of questions there. So 
all the questions we didn't answer, I saved. The question is, after learning what you have, have you tried to adjust the way you speak? So has our study of linguistics influenced us to try to consciously change how we talk? I think it helped me let go. <laughs> you talk about a, a rebellious teenage spelling reform phase. Like, I have always been interested in language, and I didn't know that linguistics really was a thing until I got to college. And then I was like, oh, that, that, that is a thing. That is a name for a thing I'm interested in. And, or you don't know that descriptivist linguistics exists. Your only option really is grammatical peevery. <laughs> and so I think that it really helped me, like, just not care and rejoice in the multitude of linguistic diversity that is around you every day and to like be experimental and like play with register and uh and just be a little more conscious of the language that's happening around me yeah i would say i hmm, what would i say i would say it has influenced the way that i speak but not because I'm going out of my way to change how I'm speaking, but because I'm much more conscious when I hear myself of what it is I'm saying. So if I pick up a sound or a word or a sentence structure that I didn't used to have, I'm now aware of how those things work. And so I'll be like, oh, that's interesting. My vowels are doing weird things. I could give you a whole episode just on the way my vowels have changed since I moved from Ohio. We're not going to go there. But I don't make a lot of effort to consciously do things unless I hear something that I think is cool. But that's not because I was in linguistics. That's because when I hear things I think are cool, I steal them. Yes. So this is a, this is a thing. This is a thing that when you hear something that's cool, you try it out, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if you are in a new region, or you hear a new uh, dialectical thing, or regional slang, or something like that. Like, I definitely picked up uh, Upper Midwest yet uh, when I was in college. And I noticed that I picked it up, and I was like, that's cool. It's shiny, I'm keeping it. Right. <laughs> I definitely picked up the words hella and y'all in college. And definitely got some teasing about both because my friends and I are all language nerds who like noticing how we and our friends talk and also teasing each other. And both of them are good, fun words, and so I've kept them. It's funny because I spent five years in Virginia as a kid and didn't pick up y'all then, but somehow in Southern California, I did. I mean, how did you feel about living in Virginia, right? Like, it's, we don't have to go that deep, but, like, it depends on how you felt about the place where you were and sort of what stage in your life, right? Yeah, that's the thing. We left when I was 11. I was not thinking about how I felt about living there or the linguistic trends in the people around me. There's the Nantucket Island study right, about people with, like, losing their accent before they leave for college and, like, regaining their accent as they plan to move back after college. Is that Nantucket? Um, I don't remember. We don't do research here, but there's definitely a study 
from an island somewhere where that happened. Yeah. My partner is from Rhode Island originally and lived in the Midwest for a while. And now we're back in New England. And I can always tell when he is on the phone with a family member or someone else who has a really strong New England accent because (laughs) it just, Uh his voice just completely changes. He always has a little bit of one compared to me, but it gets very heavy when he's talking to one of his family members. And it's very funny. My mom isn't originally from Virginia and she lived all over as a kid. So she doesn't have an accent anyone can pin down. But five minutes on the phone with some of her family from Georgia or one of her friends from Virginia, and she's got an accent to match theirs. It's kind of hilarious, actually, how fast it'll be, like, zero to 60. Oh, she is, like, you can tell exactly who she's talking to. So I feel like the moral of the story here is twofold. One is we don't try to adjust the way we speak because we know it's going to happen to us anyway. And it's more fun to just kind of let it happen. Mm -hmm. Uh, And number two is if you are in high school or early in college and all of the things that we have said that we enjoyed doing sound like things that you enjoy doing, go find your linguistics department because that's your new major. Correct. (laughs) I also want to add one other thing, which is There are a couple times I have consciously changed the way I speak, specifically because I realized I wasn't being understood. So I am a high school teacher, and I grew up in an area where we had water fountains, and we wrote our assignments down in planners. And I would say those words to my class. I'd be like, write down your homework, take out your planner. Kid be like, can I go get some water? And I'd say, yeah, go to the water fountain that's right here. Don't go to the fancy one down by the gym. And they would stare at me. And I had to consciously add the words agenda, as in your planner, your book you write stuff down and is called an agenda where I live now, which is so weird to me. Um, yeah. I tried like compromising and calling it an agenda book. And literally everyone was like, you are from another planet. Please stop. <laughs> So I've given up. It's an agenda. That's fine. And I also had to consciously add the phrase bubbler. The phrase? It's a word. I had to consciously add the word bubbler to my vocabulary. Because Uh. if I said water fountain, they'd be like, there are no fountains inside this building. Wait, you live in a bubbler area? I do. That's so weird. Yeah. Oh. I had no idea that was in New England. I thought I had escaped that when I moved back from Wisconsin. No, it's (laughs) it's like southern... New England, like Boston-ish, and then like the South Shore, possibly, probably into Rhode Island, and then like that one tiny area of Wisconsin. Right. And I have no idea why these two communities so far apart geographically are the only two places that have that word, but they do. So I know why. There's a third region also, and I know why. Uh, So there's a third region, which is part of Australia, that... (laughs) That was not where I was expecting that. (laughs) Yes. So the third region is part of Australia, and it also calls uh, water fountains bubblers. And the reason why these three regions are linked, and I know this because I studied linguistics at the University of Wisconsin, is because that is... So 
the word bubbler comes from a particular model of water fountain that Kohler made. And Uh Kohler is based in Kohler, Wisconsin. Um, And uh, they marketed this particular brand of drinking fountain, water fountain, to those three areas very heavily. And it stuck and genericized. And people started calling water fountains bubblers. That is so weird. Why those three places in particular? I guess they were test markets for something. That is so cool. Sarah, you said you tried to compromise with agenda book. Did you try to compromise with drinking fountain? Um, probably. For me, drinking fountain and water fountain are 100% interchangeable, so I don't remember. I just Ah. remember that whenever I used the word fountain, they were like, there is not one. And I just gave up. Gotcha. So the... The planner agenda thing made me realize that I have a hyper-regionalism for this. Oh, Oh, do tell. Yeah, for this item, uh, which is a Chandler's. There is a (laughs) store. Yeah, there is a store in the town where I grew up called Chandler's, and they sold an assignment notebook that literally everybody got every year to write your assignments down in. And... They went out of business when I was in fifth or sixth grade, and there was a whole big deal, and the school had to print up and provide its own assignment notebooks because you couldn't get Chandler's anymore. And so we would say, write that down in your Chandler's. Huh. And it's probably gone now because now there's been enough time where nobody buys these. But yeah, if you ask people of my vintage or older... They'll tell you that, yeah, assignment notebook, Chandler's. Wow, that's so cool. I actually, so I thought of another time when I have consciously changed my language based on something that I have learned. And this is being aware of the way that language can make people uncomfortable or where unconscious language excludes people. And and so I have consciously changed my language to not say or to try to avoid saying guys and say folks Uh or people or all to try to avoid saying ladies and gentlemen, that kind of thing. Right. That's a good point. Right. So that is a way that and I, I think that that's just general courtesy and inclusiveness. But when you study linguistics, you learn about the ways that language can be used to entrench power. And so I think it was very obvious for me the necessity to change my own language. That makes a lot of sense. And you're right. That's one that I don't even consciously think about much at this point, but I've done the same thing. Um, Also, you didn't mention, but using they instead of assuming if I'm talking about like, oh, I saw this person earlier and not just assuming based on appearance that their pronouns are he or she, but just defaulting to they, that was at least semi-conscious. Yeah, I didn't experience that one consciously, but I do know that now it's jarring for me to read a text where the epicene pronoun is not they. Oh, same for sure. Can we define the word epicene? 
Uh, sure. Epicene is um, not gender ambiguous, but rather gender unknown. So it's the pronoun that you use when you are talking about somebody whose gender you don't know. Cool. Yeah, I think I was mostly conscious of it because my linguistics professor explicitly talked about it at one point. It was a language of gender and sexuality class, and she said something, and she was clearly trying to point out that we all have these biases in the way we speak that we don't think about, but the way she framed it, it was essentially when you, you know, you see this person and they just, like, set up the scenario, and she was expecting the class to say he and everyone just kind of said in unison, Oh, they, um, or what do they want or whatever the appropriate response was. And she didn't believe us. And she was like, like you, you might think you do, but actually I bet most of you would default to, and we got into this whole like mini debate about whether or not at this point, most of us in the class would default to they, and after that, I started actually paying attention more. And it was early enough in my making the shift that I think of the shift as semi-conscious, but it didn't start that way. And it's long since become part of my unconscious like speech patterns again. All right. So our next question is from Beth Galadriels. And... She asked, how does pluralizing superhero names work? Is it Batsman or Batman? Uh, Would it be different for Spider-Man because there's a hyphen in there? What do you do with that? This is an important question. Oh, for sure. Especially with our tendency in comics these days to have multiple universes. The Spider-Man question in particular is important for Into the Spider-Verse, I feel. Yes. Yes. Fair. I feel like... Actually, since you mentioned Into the Spider-Verse, I was thinking, I feel like I've most frequently seen Spider-People, because you've also got Gwen and Penny running around. Plus, I haven't seen it, but aren't there also some Spider-Not-Humans? Well, there's a Spider-Pig. Okay. Also, you haven't seen Into the Spider-Verse? Dude, I suck at movies. Okay, we're sitting down. I know, but so do I. And I still saw it, and it was amazing. Yeah, but you live in a comic book family yes okay fair uh sarah we are going to find a way to make sure that you watch this movie because it's a great movie i know i'm not like avoiding it on purpose i just we will create the environment like if it has to be a thing we will set up a thing so that it happens if it's not going to happen passively because spider-verse is very important excellent i look forward to it I also, I feel like Spider-Gwen would 100% object to being included in Spider-Man. Yeah. I feel like if people were like, hey, look, it's a group of Spider-Men, she would be like, I'm going to punch you now. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, and I feel like if, I mean, I guess for Batman, with a lot, with all of the different other characters, you have like the Bat family. Mm -hmm. Um, I could also totally believe Bat people. But then, I guess it's... Bat people. <laughs> but like... Well, I think it's just bats at that point. Also true. Um, so spider people also works well. But like, if you're not considering necessarily multiple 
universes or multiple characters with the same powers or or some other kind of relationship but like Mm -hmm. just different incarnations of literally the same person like how you have Andrew Garfield and Tobey Maguire and Tom Holland all playing Spider-Man do you say their Spider-Men are different but equally valid do you say their different Spider-Mans are all different but equally valid do you say one of those and say but I like Andrew Garfield the best I don't know I cannot I cannot deal with Spider-Mans <laughs> uh, that's no whatever the answer is it's not Spider-Mans okay see I'm actually okay with Spider-Mans because I hear it and assume like that we're talking to like a toddler or some mm. other small child who is still figuring out how plurals work so it's definitely not right in my head, but it's wrong in the kind of way that sounds like a like an English language learner mistake. Mm. See, I actually like Spider-Man's, um, possibly because this is something I learned consciously as a linguist, but when we pluralize proper nouns or when we pluralize things that are in a different meaning from their original one, we often don't do it following the exact same pattern or if we make past tense verbs. So in baseball, if you hit a fly ball and it gets caught, you say that the batter flied out. You don't say that he flew out because you've taken the verb fly, you've changed it into a noun to describe the ball, and then you've taken that noun and change it into a verb with a new meaning. And so it doesn't retain its original past tense. Um, And also, this also reminds me of, like, the Toronto Maple Leafs, the hockey team, Mm -hmm. which there's not actually, I don't think, a linguistic reason why they chose to keep the F instead of going to V, like we expect from leaves. But this idea of multiple Spider-Mans feels to me similar. So, like, I guess I would interpret the phrase Spider-Man to be like Peter Parker and Miles Morales hanging out together are two Spider-Men, but Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland are three Spider-Mans because they all played Peter Parker. Interesting. Okay. And I don't know if that's just a distinction I've arbitrarily made, but that's how it feels to me. I feel like this is like a fish fishes Mm -hmm. kind of a distinction Mm -hmm. here. Okay, yeah, actually, no, I think you've convinced me. I can see Spider-Mans as different, distinct incarnations or exhibits of a Spider-Man. Yeah, I think I'm sold, too. I do want to talk about Batsman, though. Ah, yes. Yes, because that's delightful. It is delightful. So we have Attorney General, because what we wanted to say was General Attorney, but for some reason, a reason that probably is related to Latin, we put the adjective after the noun. But what this does is it gives us a fun blueprint to pluralize things that break into two pieces in a way that's playful. And so even though bat is definitely modifying man, you can have batsman and it will be funny. There's also the example of like siblings-in-law or parents-in-law where some people do put the plural on the noun part, like brother or sister, and they'll say, oh, I have four brothers-in-law. Because there, also, the adjective kind of thing, the modifier is coming later, 
but not because we've decided to be Latin, just because that's actually where it goes in that particular English phrase. But some people do say brother-in-laws or sister-in-laws. Right. So it's interesting because some people still interpret that as noun, optional, plural, adjective. And some people have totally taken the whole hyphenated three-word phrase and been like, that is a noun. I can put the plural on the end. Do we think that that's influenced by in-laws? Like, oh, my in-laws are coming over? Because I think even people who would say, like, brothers-in-law would never be like, my sin-laws are coming. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Well, absolutely, too. People who say brothers-in-law would not say sin-law. I will put myself out there as an example of that, because I definitely say brothers-in-law, but I also don't say (laughs) sin-law. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if there's a influence one direction or the other, but I would totally believe it if there was. I also do appreciate the idea of Batsman as being like Batman, but having multiple bats. Yes. (laughs) Like, Batsman is, well, actually, hold on. So, like, a Batman is, isn't a Batman like a valet, right? Something like that, yeah. What? There's um the English term, I feel like I've mostly seen it in like period novels. Um, uh, Lord Peter Whimsey, I think his manservant used to be his Batman when they were like in the, in the military in World War One. But I don't know what the actual definition is because I've only picked it up from context. But it is something like, like a manservant or something like that. Ah, and I feel like there's something really good here. Like, I, th- I think we're onto something, because I'm pretty sure it's Batman canon that Alfred Pennyworth feeds the bats in the Batcave. Like, the flying ones, not just the people ones. I guess he does also feed the people ones frequently. So he is Batman's Batman and also Batman's Batsman. <laughs> I think he is Batman's Batman and also Batman's Batsman. <laughs> I we can do nothing else for this question. We need to move yep, on. Nope, that is the perfect ending. Indeed. Also, the title of this episode is Batman's Batsman. And on that note. On that note, our last question ties in very nicely to the fun with ambiguity we were talking about earlier. This one was sent to us through email by our friend Amy. We've condensed it slightly from its original form, but she sent a quote from a style guide or submission guide in a magazine. The purpose of this magazine is to inform. You should therefore write in a clear, informal style, avoiding jargon and acronyms. Your question is, usually I hear informal as not formal, but in that context it sounds like informal. Are these words all related? Are there two meanings to the word informal? Yeah. Affix ambiguity! Yay! Woo! Affix ambiguity is correct. I'm going to jump in here with my Latin nerd self. Um, Oh, good. I am almost certain that what has happened here is exactly what we were just saying with affix ambiguity. Because we have formal and then informal. So that, like, as she says, normally we interpret that word as meaning not formal. And I think that is what that is inform as a verb also has that prefix in 
but in that situation, even though it's the same prefix, it does have a second meaning. Even in Latin, the word in and the prefix in could either mean in or into, as we think of it, or it could mean against or not. Um, and that basically just depended on context. But because we have the verb in form, we can tell that in that place, the in has attached to the stem form, and it means like give shape, give information to or into something um, versus formal, where we've attached the suffix first, meaning to do with form, to do with style, and then in as in not that. So probably they are etymologically related, but I think what magazine here is doing is actually just having a little bit of fun with the fact that these words look alike and sound alike and it's a nice like it's a nice kind of mnemonic device for their style guide which is if you want to inform someone of something you should be informal because if you're too highfalutin with your language people don't actually learn yeah i think you're right whoever wrote this is having a little bit of fun with these two words i have to ask though has anybody encountered the word informal meaning describing something that informs no i'd never seen it like that before the word i hear that means that is informative yes or informational mm -hmm. yes although going back to the ambiguity thing does informative could it also mean something that doesn't influence you in a formative way i feel like my need for that word is not very often <laughs> well right <laughs> which is why it doesn't uh but also there is a like there is a thing where you have the in and you have a tiv and it may be such that in can't happen after a tiv right you might have to have unformative at that point oh that's true because there there is this thing where you get an order of affixes where in meaning not has to be very early mm -hmm. and if you don't get that, you have to use un. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I've never I've never thought about that, but it is quite possibly a thing. Yeah, that is a morphological thing that I remember and remember having my mind blown by that sometimes you have to use un because it's too late to use in. Yeah, wow. I. This is the first time I'm realizing that, but wow. Well, and so like... You actually, if you have uninformative at this point, the in and inform, like inform, I feel it has been lexicalized. Like most people wouldn't really like the in and information. I think yeah. people wouldn't actually count that as an affix. But yeah. you can't say ininformative. You have to say uninformative. Mm -hmm. Right. Some of it is like phonological too, because ininformative is hard to say. That's true. All right. Shall we talk about the puzzler? What puzzler? Ah, good question. So every episode, we're going to have a puzzler. And sometimes it will be linguistics related, and sometimes it won't be. It's basically just up to our capricious whims. And we will reveal the answer to the puzzler in the next episode. So you have between one episode and the next to work it out or figure it out or cheat and look it up. We're not going to so. stop you. 
So we don't have an answer for last time's puzzler because we didn't have a last time, but uh, we have a puzzler for this episode and it goes like this. So for this week's puzzler, we're going to be talking about English spelling. There are a bunch of words in English that are spelled with two consecutive double letters. Anybody think of a couple off the top of their head? Raccoon. Coffee. Bassoon is the one that I think of, or balloon, which are basically the same word. So there's a whole bunch with two consecutive double letters, but it's pretty rare to find an English word with three consecutive double letters. So the puzzler for this week is find one of those words. And we won't stop you from looking them up on the internet, but it's definitely cheating if you do that. We're not yes. going to come to your house and stop you, though. So Yeah, be your own person. Make your own choices. Also, I would just like to say that when you mentioned bassoon and balloon being basically the same word, immediately in my head I saw a person playing a latex balloon with their fingers, like a musical instrument. Oh, see, that's funny, because I was picturing someone trying to play a bassoon, but, like, it was filled with helium and slowly lifting them into the sky. (laughs) I intended none of those things, and I'm delighted in all of them. (laughs) On that note, uh, enjoy our bassoon balloons and whatever else you thought of. And thanks for listening. Our episode is now over. Linguistics After Dark is produced by Mfazing Enterprises. Audio editing is done by Eli. Question wrangling and transcriptions are done by Jenny. And show notes are done by Sarah. Our show is entirely listener supported. You can help us by visiting patreon.com slash mfozzing, E-M-F-O-Z-Z-I-N-G, and by telling your friends about us. Today, we want to say thanks to these awesome patrons who are already supporting us on Patreon. Um, we have TB Tigger, Brighton, Inga, Jeff, Dre, Bex, and Mitch. Thank you, everyone. You can find all our episodes and show notes online at linguisticsafterdark.com or on all your favorite podcast directories. Don't forget to rate us, too. And send those questions, text or audio, to questions at linguisticsafterdark.com or tweet at us at lxadpodcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram as well at lxadpodcast. And until next time, if you weren't consciously aware of your tongue in your mouth, now you are. That's cool. It's all good. We can fix it in post. <laughs> okay, then. That is the the motto of scripted uh, broadcasting, yes. All right, that sounds like the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ah, uh, segment over. <laughs> all right, Jenny, you're up. For more about Sinlaw, our <laughs> upcoming Patreon goal for Lawyers After Dark yes. will soon be met. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your friends about us. Have them give us money. We'll bring on some lawyers and make them answer this. I just uh, remember that whenever I used the word fountain, they were like, there is not one. And I just gave gotcha. up. No, it would have to be like a, it's an oblique, isn't it? So it doesn't fucking matter. I don't know. I actually really enjoyed the one that we edited together. I feel like, especially the the question about the X-Men doing the Great British Bake Off. Like how you have Andrew Garfield and other people who play spider-man <laughs> in movies why can't i think of their names toby, toby mcguire that one
Yeah. And Tom Holland, I think, is the Tom newest. Tom Holland. I'm going to try that all again. Yep. Um, 